Coming to you from the AT&T Podcast Studio, this is Long Story Short. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Jennifer Palmer covers education for Oklahoma Watch. She's been following an effort to start a religious charter school in Oklahoma, which would test the limits of the separation of church and state. Jennifer, what's the latest on the Catholic charter school proposed by the Archdiocese? There was a vote recently by the statewide virtual charter school board, which is the uh, the small board in Oklahoma that is over all of these uh, types of online schools. And they did vote um, five to zero to um, to decline the school, to, to reject the application. All right. So does that end it? Is the proposal dead now? No, no. They, once they have been rejected, um, they give them several um, things they can improve in their application and they are given 30 days to come back and try again. Well, let's pack up a little and get some background. What do we know about this proposal? So this is a proposal that has been made by the Archdiocese of Oklahoma City and the Diocese of Tulsa. It's a joint application. They want to open a an online Catholic school. Um, so this would be a virtual school. Um, it would be the curriculum they would like to use mirrors what they use in the Catholic school system, including the religious components. So it would be, um, they they want to be a free, um, you know, state-sponsored school with state funding. And who's making the decision about that? This decision falls to this um, small board that we've been covering for months, uh, well, years actually, but this particular issue for months, um, they are a five-member board by statute, and they've had some issues um, even having five members. They were down to three for over a year and um, got down to two late last year, which is not enough to even hold a meeting or make any decisions, right? That's not a quorum. Um, They are now up to five, and three of those members are very new. Um, Now, these board members are appointed, um, one by the governor, and two each by the leaders of the House and Senate. Now, when that board met recently, they outlined some concerns. What, What were they talking about? Right. One of the major concerns is the school's ability to accommodate students with disabilities, um, which is um, something public schools are required to do on, under, you know, state and federal law. Um, it's not something that private schools are required to do, um, which is where the these uh, Catholic school leaders have experience. Um, so that was a major concern. There were also some um, board management concerns. There was concern with um, outsourcing of services um, that they had put in their application. And then, of course, the big one is the Constitution. Um, the whole premise of the school violates the state constitution. Now, what does the attorney general had to say about uh, about that and the legality of the proposal? I mean, that's been a big issue for this board. They have had um, conflicting AG opinions. Uh, They had John O'Connor's 
late last year that said they should consider the application when the um, director of this agency asked. Um, but then when our new AG came on in January and took office, he um, pulled that opinion and it is no longer. Um, and he issued his own uh, advice to this board and said they need to tread very carefully um, and that as a big proponent of religious liberties, he believes that this would be a detriment to that. Now, uh, if the board in the end rejects the application, what happens next? It's very likely that the um, the diocese would sue uh, the state. Um, they have been helped by the Notre Dame College of Law and have pretty much said that they are willing to take this all the way to the state Supreme, I mean, the U.S. Supreme Court, if need be. And uh, what if the board approves it? Also, very likely someone will sue. Um, there are some uh, groups who are very closely watching this, who um, believe strongly in the separation of church and state and the um, state constitution and would probably sue over that. Now, is the board uh, concerned about getting sued? They are. They talked a lot about this at the last meeting. Um, there were some uh, board members who asked the AG for advice on whether they would be represented if they are sued personally, which this board has been sued personally before, very recently over Epic Charter Schools and, and um, they're um, dealing with that oversight of that school. And um, the, you know, legal advice from the AG is if they knowingly violate the constitution, they may not be represented by the AG. So that's definitely something they are taking into consideration. Now, State Superintendent Walters was at that meeting and he has vowed to represent, to provide legal representation or any other assistance to these board members if they vote to approve and they are sued. When do we think we'll have a decision from them? I think they will need to meet again in May. They um, have 30 days to, uh, you know, revise their application and try again. So likely next month. All right. Well, thanks, Jennifer. You can read all of Jennifer's coverage of this uh, proposal to launch a public Catholic school online and uh, all her other education coverage at our website, oklahomawatch.org. While you're there, you can also sign up for her weekly newsletter, Education Watch. Reporter Paul Munnies recently wrote about an odd boundary dispute between Oklahoma and Texas on the southern border uh, of Oklahoma down at Lake Texoma. Paul, why is this an issue? Yes, this is an issue now because uh, Oklahoma has reconstituted its Boundary Commission for the Red River. Um, they are basically looking at something that popped up in 2009 between both states uh, where it was discovered at a pumping station um, at Lake Texoma thought to be on the Texas side. Part of it was actually on the Oklahoma side of the border. And so they're looking at that and figuring out a way to resolve that dispute. Now, uh, I guess most of us would think that the border between Texas and Oklahoma has been pretty clear for uh, more than 100 years. Uh, when was the last time the Boundary Commission had to have a meeting? 
That's right. Yeah, this is the first time it's met in several decades. And in fact, uh, Oklahoma and Texas signed a formal compact that set all the border kind of disputes aside and, and figured them out uh, back in the year 2000. And so everyone thought they were kind of dealing with from that that standpoint and everything was settled. Uh, then this issue popped up in 2009. Uh, what happened was um, an invasive species called uh, zebra mussels was found at Lake Texoma. And um, in trying to ways to figure out to, to eradicate that, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service went back and looked at some of the surveys and maps and found out they had used the wrong uh, easement and map back in 1989 when they built this pumping station for Texas. And in fact, part of that now lies on the Oklahoma side of the boundary. And that caused a lot of ripple issues that are now dealing with now. Now, uh, who serves on the uh, Oklahoma Red River Boundary Commission? So yeah, this was set up again, uh, like I said, reconstituted. And there's five members. There's representatives of the governor's office, uh, lieutenant governor, attorney general, the speaker pro tem, and the house speaker. Um, and so they met for the first time to just um, recently to talk about this one issue and this one issue. Really, they can't look at anything else other than this one issue. Now, historically, uh, there have been other border disputes with Texas. They have not all been as friendly as this one seems to be, have they? No, they haven't. And actually, uh, it was probably almost 100 years ago, actually, 1931, when it was more of a skirmish happening down at the Texas-Oklahoma border. Uh, there was some issues back then over uh, a brand new bridge that was free, replacing a toll bridge. Um, the previous bridge operator that did the toll bridge sued and wanted some compensation for their, their thing. Um, and then there were barricades erected on both sides. And in fact, uh, the Oklahoma governor at the time, Alfalfa Bill Murray, uh, sent out the Oklahoma National Guard to kind of um, push back some of the Texas folks uh, on that side of the border. And actually, he went down there himself uh, during that time, waved his gun around. Uh, that eventually got figured out after a few days. Um, but uh, that was definitely a lot heated uh, than this time around. Now, in this case, uh, it's really the issue is more about the water than the line between the two states, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, this this water pumping station that's operated by this uh, North Texas water uh, district uh, supplies about 200,000 residents in North Texas and various cities, including Sherman and Denison, which are pretty decent sized cities. Um, but, you know, part of the reason why this is a dispute is because they're pumping water basically now from the Oklahoma side including some of these zebra mussels. And so there is a federal law that you're not allowed to transport invasive species across state lines. So they're doing that right now under an exemption from Congress that allows them to do that. They can take that water, including some zebra mussels, take it to a treatment station in Wiley, Texas, clean it, kill the mussels, and then send it on to their residents for, for water use. Uh, but of course, that has caused a lot of problems with what, ha what should happen now with that part of the water pumping station that's technically in Oklahoma. So what do Texas officials want to do? So, yeah, their water district folks came up and met with the, the Oklahoma Boundary Commission, and they basically just want a straight boundary swap. And it's really a kind of sliver of the current boundary. They kind of propose swapping about three acres. Uh, it's not even land. It's just boundary that's on that river um, and Texoma part there. And so they say that's the easiest way to kind of make us both whole. Uh, now, that does not address what's been happening in the last 30-something uh, years when they've been pumping water technically from the Oklahoma side. Well, what do uh, Oklahomans want to do? How did they respond to that? 
Yeah. So the, the officials on the panel were, were very concerned and they, they're, you know, they want to study this issue a little bit more. They said there's a lot of property rights issues, federal rights, water rights. And of course, there's a state law that forbids water sales. So they can't just set up an agreement and set, start selling this water to Texas. That's been an issue before with some of the tribes as well uh, in, in terms of sales to, to out-of-state interests. And so, um, but, you know, at this point, uh, Oklahoma is kind of holding all the cards because um, Texas is using this water. They're using it under a 2014 memorandum between the then governors, uh, Governor Fallon in Oklahoma and Governor Perry in Texas. And so Texas has been using and pumping this water for quite a while without any kind of compensation to Oklahoma. What could happen if they don't work this out? Yeah, so the worst case scenario for at least the Texas folks is that uh, they would shut down that pumping station, uh, have to provide alternate means for about 200,000 residents to get water in North Texas that are served by that current pumping station. And they said that their cost estimates to build a brand new pumping station on the Texas side, as it is right now, would be about $50 million. And that's not including permitting time and also new pipeline that would have to serve that new pump station. And the uh, Boundary Commission uh, trying to get a little help from OU, as I recall, right? That's right. Yeah, they basically uh, asked uh, OU President Joseph Harris to kind of set up uh, his own committee of experts to kind of study this issue, including folks from the law school. He's a former law school dean before he became president uh, and other private sector folks to kind of look at this and see what a fair uh, settlement for Oklahoma would be. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. You can read Paul's coverage of the new boundary dispute between Oklahoma and Texas, as well as all his other coverage of state government on our website, oklahomawatch.org. Keaton Ross covers democracy for Oklahoma Watch. He's been tracking election-related bills, and his latest story examines which of those proposals has gained the most traction and how Oklahomans' voting rights might be affected. Keaton, at the start of the legislative session back in early February, you reported that there were about 90 of those voting and election bills coming up for consideration during the session. How many of those are still alive? We're down to less than 20 of those are, are still active. At this point of the session, uh, in order for bills to be still be considered, they, they have to have passed uh, a House and Senate committee and at least one of the full House or Senate. Uh, so we've, we've progressed pretty far in the process, um, and a lot of those have been, been whittled down. And why is this a particularly important year for voting policies? It's important because, of course, next year with the 2024 presidential election cycle, uh, anything that passes this year is likely to uh, take effect and be implemented ahead of that. Um, so, of course, you have that starting with the March uh, primary presidential primaries going all the way uh, through that big November election. Um, so it's important in that regard uh, that it's the, kind of the last chance to get stuff passed before uh, that cycle I don't know. It, it just for context here, I guess we saw a lot of these bills pop up uh, from Republicans who were uh, questioning the validity of the last presidential election and uh, maybe trying to get some uh, more restrictive controls in place before the next presidential election. Isn't that kind of where these came from? That's correct. And and you've seen that that trend in uh, several other Republican led states. Um you, you know, you're seeing even some in bills introduced here um, 
proposing things like eliminating uh, no excuse absentee voting, uh, just some uh, very restrictive measures that ultimately uh, didn't get very far in the process this year. But that's where you're seeing a lot of these uh, bills coming from, for sure. Now, what kind of voting bills of those 20 or so that are left, what's gotten the most momentum? So at this point, the the bills that have gotten the most momentum are mostly uh, dealing with some procedural things, um, not, nothing too incredibly sweeping, uh, things like trying to stop people from canceling their voter registration in uh, primary season and, and registering as another party. Uh, so, you know, you're maybe you vote in June as a Republican and try to switch at, to a Democrat in August or uh, that sort of thing, uh, trying to keep uh, deceased people off of voting rolls in an efficient way. Uh, just so those sort of minor procedural things are mostly what have gotten through uh, those, those big sweeping things that would, that would have a major effect uh, didn't end up getting, getting that traction this year. Now, you spoke with some advocates who uh, are on the other end of the spectrum, really supported expanding voting rights, making it easier to vote. How are they feeling uh, about uh, this wave of bills? So they're they're certainly pleased that those most restrictive measures uh, did not get through. Um, also, that that includes under the umbrella of several bills dealing with the initiative petition process. Uh, getting a state question on the ballot that would have made that harder. Those bills uh, did not get get through at this point. Um, some of them cleared a committee or cleared one chamber, but then uh, stalled. So certainly some satisfaction on that end, but also a little bit of frustration that that bills that would do things like increase early voting hours, um, require the state to get its online voter registration system fully operational, um, before the 2024 cycle, those sorts of things uh, did not did not get through this year. Um, so kind of a mixed bag there. Now, over the past several months, you've reported on poll worker shortages in parts of the state that can affect uh, voting access or lawmakers doing anything to remedy that issue. They are. There were two main bills dealing with that. One would uh, essentially double the daily compensation for uh, precinct official from about $100 to $200 a day, um, a little bit more if you're the lead precinct official. Um, so that that has gotten through. Um, and there's also a bill that would codify in state law that threatening or harassing an election official uh, is a misdemeanor offense. So kind of trying to shore up the protections and any kind of, of fear of harassment there. Now, how do the poll workers and election officials feel about those proposed changes? I'd have to think pretty positive. Yeah, certainly with the folks I talked to uh, seem to think it, it would be uh, a beneficial thing if it if it does end up getting across the finish line. Uh, of course, you know, the, the day of a, a poll worker is very long, um, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. with prep time before and after typically. So that's a 13 to 14 hour shift a lot of the time. Um, so I, you know, certainly a positive development based on those conversations. Uh, I have had talked to some folks who say that, uh, you know, maybe allowing a split shift or something where someone doesn't have to work as long of a day might be a good thing. Um, but ultimately, yeah, positive overall. All right. What's the deadline now for bills to get out of the legislature and onto the governor's desk? 
So the deadline for bills to be heard in the full opposing chamber is April 29th, I believe. And then after that, uh, depending on what's passed both chambers, bills might have to go to a conference committee um, where lawmakers try to work out certain details. And then uh, the session is required to end by Friday, May 26th. Uh, so that's how long we have until something can get to the to the governor's desk. All right. Well, thanks, Keaton. You can read all of Keaton Ross's coverage of democracy in Oklahoma and subscribe to his weekly newsletter, Democracy Watch, by visiting our website, oklahomawatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This episode was recorded at the AT&T Podcast Studio. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.